Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello there, I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at the Australian National University. And I'm Maria Teflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations, also ANU. And it's great to have you here with us for this very special Democracy Sausage Extra Serve or Second Serve, however you want to call it. Now, we all thought the summer was bad, right? Droughts, heat wave, apocalyptic dust and deadly bushfires. Then floods and destructive hail. Make it stop, people said, and eventually it did. But a disaster strewn 2020 obviously started out as it meant to continue because now there's a pandemic to contend with. COVID-19 is sweeping through more than 80 countries with well over 100,000 people infected so far. The Australian Reserve Bank has acted in concert with central banks across the world, cutting interest rates to try to keep the economy from sinking. The Australian government has had to junk its political trophy surplus and throw the switch to stimulus in a bid to head off the nation's first recession in almost 30 years. Key sectors are being hammered, tourism and hospitality, aviation and of course higher education. One man who has had to contend with nearly all of these aspects just this year alone is the Vice-Chancellor of the Australian National University, Professor Brian Schmidt. Brian, welcome to Democracy Sausage. And uh, I know you've been on you know, all kinds of things, Q&A and uh, AM recently, and you do uh, strut at the stage all over the world. But uh, I'm, I'm really predicting your career is going to take off now that you're uh, making it on the sausage. Uh, or perhaps uh, come crashing back down to earth, of course. Uh, and I found it interesting that you said I'm a second serve, so I'm sort of like a by-election sausage here, <laughs> it sounds like. No, no, no. The first serve was so good and now we're going to have another one. I, yeah, that's I think right. that's really, yeah. That's right. Now, look, at it, 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 we'll come to coronavirus uh, because that's obviously the issue du jour, probably the issue for the year and not just for us but right around the world. But first, um, you know, it's been, a, 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 as I say, it's been a particularly tough start to the year here at ANU for you, hasn't it? Uh, it has been a remarkable year and one that has had our campus closed probably more times than it has in its entire history due to uh, extreme weather events. Uh, the smoke, which just inundated our campus, and then the hailstorm from hell uh, that we're still assessing the damage. But the damage there is amazing. It's pretty much any figure you want to think about and then multiply by 10. Yeah. I mean, all of the cars virtually and all of the outdoor car parks, which is virtually all the car parks at ANU, were just absolutely pummeled by that hailstorm in January. Uh, and even as I was walking around today, I still see that there are uh, many cars, some, you know, that the people are, are still using. Presumably, they either have, didn't have them insured or they're yet to have their cars 
replaced or whatever. But, you know, there are cars in the car parks which just look like, you know, 50 people have set upon them with hammers. It's really uh, extraordinary. And unfortunately, all the old buildings here have had their roofs in the same place. And that's, you know, created a whole set of issues that you can imagine. But the the damage will take many, I mean, probably more than a year to fix. And as I said, the cost is going to be beyond anything you can imagine. Um, yeah. What was the impact on research facilities, for example? Well, the biggest impact has been on our glass houses. So ANU uh, and CSIRO just across the road have these set of glass houses. We have some of the strongest uh, plant sciences in the world, probably top couple places in the world. Every one of those uh, greenhouses was smashed and, you know, experiments going back years, people's PhD theses, all destroyed. And these are uh, bits of research that are meant to, you know, improve productivity of agriculture around the world. So it's a setback for us, but it's actually a setback for the world because we're such leaders in this area. Yeah, I've, I've you know, heard many stories of, um, you know, damage to buildings around the place and obviously seen them, but, you know, heard many stories of uh, the the individual impact of the storms. I, I know, for example, someone in the School of Art and Design lost pretty much a whole visual PhD project shortly to be presented when the skylight oh, wow. above it collapsed and I think these were watercolours and, you know, everything was was just uh, sort of destroyed. And so, um, you know, uh, the, the, just the multiple ways in which this storm affected the uh, the whole campus. Now, look, many people who are listening will, of course, be hearing that you're an American or you're born in America, uh, I think in Montana, and your your alma maters are University of Arizona and Harvard, I believe, correct? That's correct. And you've won a Nobel Prize, as I mentioned before. Can you tell it, take us through that, um, what, what that Nobel Prize was for, if you can put it in language that uh, someone as uh, basic as myself can understand? Sure. I mean, when I came to Australia in the end of 1994, my pitch to get a job here at ANU at Mount Stromlo Observatory, which was you know, one of the best places in the world for me to get a job, so I was pretty excited about it was that since 1929, we knew that the universe was expanding. Everything in the universe is moving away from everything else. Now, that's true on large scales. You're not expanding right now. I'm not expanding right now. The, the gravity and uh, forces here on Earth are bigger than this. But everything in the universe, all the galaxies are moving away from each other. And they have been since the time of the Big Bang. Now, if we measure how fast the universe is growing in size now, I can, and I, I figure that rate out, I can run the universe in reverse and I can figure out how long it has been growing. I basically take things back to the time of the Big Bang. So that's what I did for my PhD thesis. When I came here, what I said, my pitch was, I'm going to look at objects so far away and measure how fast the universe is expanding back in time with them. So looking at objects that are, for example, 5 billion light years in distance, so 5 billion years in the past. And I'm going to compare that number, how fast the universe is expanding then with now. And I'm going to see if the universe is slowing down enough because the universe is full of stuff that has gravity and that gravity will slow the universe down. I'm going to see if there's enough stuff to cause the universe to stop expanding sometime in the future, go into reverse, and then we would get the opposite of the Big Bang, the Ganab-Gib, the Big Bang backwards, and the world would end. How exciting would that be? <laughs> or the Big Crunch, as it's <laughs> sometimes called. I like the Ganab-Gib. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing in 1998, after three, year, three and a little bit of years very hard work here, when I was uh, quite a young postdoc, is when we measured the past, 
the universe was expanding slower in the past and had actually sped up. So the universe was accelerating. Gravity was working in reverse. Now that is either wrong or amazing. And it seems to be amazing rather than wrong. Turns out Einstein in 1917 realized if that space was full of energy, every part of space had energy, that energy would actually cause the universe's gravity to be negative, would be to, to repulse. And so we seem to have discovered that about 70% of the universe is this energy that's tied to space itself, and the universe is accelerating forever and ever, and therefore will go without end. So that's what I won the Nobel Prize for. But how did you, how did you find that out, Brian? Well, it's about going through and making measurements. And it turns out that if you, for example, see how bright a star is, the further away it is, the fainter it appears. Not a surprise there. And so we were able to make those measurements quite accurately with exploding stars called supernovae. They're really bright, so I can see them halfway across the universe. I can then measure how much their light as it travels to us was stretched by the expansion of space. And it turns out if I divide those two quantities, I get a measure of the expansion rate of the universe. And so I did that to nearby objects and distant objects, was able to tie it together and, and find that the universe was speeding up over time. Now, the tough thing about looking at really distant faint objects, one of the toughest things is a kind of a primary concern of getting through our atmosphere. Are you doing this from Stromlo and from other observatories or is this Hubble imagery? Well, it turns out we use pretty much every observatory on planet Earth. This is right at the bleeding edge uh, back in uh, the late 90s when we did it. So we use telescopes here in Australia. We use telescopes uh, around the world. We use the Hubble Space Telescope. And indeed, I was the leader of a group of 20 people, uh, almost all of whom were older than me uh, and spread around the world. And one of the great things for me coming to Australia is I was given by ANU the resources to run this team that, quite frankly, any other place in the world, I would have they would have said, you're too young, let someone else do it. And so that's, a, I guess, the reason I have so much loyalty to ANU is they allowed me to work with these people around the world. And can I say, my colleagues around the world made the unusual step of saying, we're going to let this young guy on the other side of the planet lead us, which is remarkable when you think about it. And now this young guy at the other side of the planet is leading us, uh, leading the whole university, uh, which is, uh, you know, a, a, I suppose a beautiful symmetry in that story. But uh, let, let's talk just very quickly about another aspect of your life. You're also a, a, a vigneron. That is right. And it's been a really bad year to be a vigneron <laughs> in Canberra. So fortunately, the hail didn't hit me, but it didn't matter because the, smoke the drought already did. Got you. The starving wallabies, I put up a kangaroo-proof fence. Turns out kangaroo-proof fence are not necessarily wallaby-proof fence. Oh. So the wallabies went through my vineyard and then the smoke tank uh, taint did the grapes in. And any of those three things was sufficient to destroy this year's crop. All three of them happened. So the rain that we've just got this week, my vineyard is finally once again looking like it might produce grapes sometime in the future. Yeah, well, I but saw on it Twitter. it has been a terrible year to make Pinot Noir in the Canberra district. Yes, yes. I saw that Clonakiller and some others have, you know, basically written it off as well because of, as you said, smoke taint. Yeah, it's been a it's been an awful year. But, so uh, I want to know, how, how does the smoke actually affect the grapes and what happens yeah, to Yeah, so the smoke is tiny little particles mm -hmm. and grapes actually have little pores. Uh, the leaves do, but also the grapes themselves. The smoke gets in there. They're relatively complex little uh, molecules in the end. 
And so if it was smoke taint at all, that might be interesting. It's kind of bacon-flavored wine. But those <laughs> interact uh, with, with the yeast when they ferment and you get all sorts of weird off flavors. Right. And the smoke was so bad here that uh, most of the testing that's been done in the district has indicated that we are 10 times over any reasonable level. So you could go through and try to make wine, but all the evidence is going to be awful. Well, let's turn now to uh, you know a whole new class of disaster that's come since then, or at least that's uh, certainly accelerated since then, and that is the COVID nineteen pandemic, pre pandemic, however it's described. It's still not technically, not yet a pandemic, at least not technically, but no. uh, as declared by the WHO. But um, at certainly, the time of recording. At the yes. time when, indeed, at the time of recording, change by next that week. may change. And also the Australian government is behaving, uh, has, has, you know, come out and said directly that it's uh, treating it as a uh, as a pandemic, that it will be declared so. Now, what, what's this uh, What's this meant for the foreign students that ANU has? And, uh, you know, you've gone to a, a great lengths, really, to uh, try and service them in this difficult circumstance. Yeah, I mean, ANU is an interesting university. It's quite small. It has, you know, it's the same scale as a Harvard or a Cambridge. Uh, and we are a community. And I try to emphasize here that the staff and the students are a community together. And so when suddenly 4,000 members of your community can't show up, it's a big deal. And I've been really happy that the community has been prepared to get together and, you know, we have almost 700 courses now being run uh, so that people can do it when they're not here, remote participation as we're calling it. Uh, And the idea is to say, imagine we're one of those students. What's going to help me? And just saying, sorry, don't bother showing up this year, game over. Mm. Well, that's probably not what I'd be looking for if I were uh, stuck in China, unable to come here. I'd be looking to get as much done as I can so that when I do get to Canberra, I can get you know my classes done. Uh, I want to be able to maybe take the opportunity to learn something I wouldn't know otherwise. I want to be part of what's going on. And because we're not really sure – when these students are going to be able to get here, we need to be flexible because they might show up you know, next week. They might show up next year. We don't know. So we're trying to keep everyone in the field of play and we're trying to make it so that they're not disadvantaged. So one of the reasons why we made the decision to move what we call the census date, which is the date that you actually pay, we moved it to the end of the semester. So people can opt to stay in And then if they decide, nope, this didn't work for me, then they're out. didn't cost them any money. But they could have remotely participated and learned all that they could in that class. And that means, for example, if they want to overload and take an extra class next year in a class that they remotely participated in, they'd probably be able to do that very quickly. So really trying to be student-centered and make sure everything we do is to keep those students engaged and able to, as quickly as possible, get back into the swing of things. And to really send that signal, it seems, to to them that they are valued, not just, you know, in terms, they're not just valued for income, they're actually valued as part of the community. We've had yeah. that poster that we've seen around ANU, viruses don't discriminate, neither do we. Uh, absolutely. And they are part of our community and a very important part of our community. These are great ambassadors for the university, but for Australia more broadly. And they're going to be there for the next 50 years. And having them part of our community and feeling engaged 
Well, it's brought our community together, if I can be honest. Uh, you know, no one's complaining about this at ANU. They're actually quite excited about it because they're doing – people are doing good. And do so we have I think any it's sense, really important. Do we have any sense of whether it's working? Uh, you know, like- yeah, we have uh, a very – you know, uh, a, a significant fraction of those students who – uh, have not been able to get here. Have on uh, have enrolled on at one or more courses, so they're definitely staying in touch. And then we do have a whole range of students, you know, trying to get to Australia by third countries and things. That's kind of hard to know exactly what's going on. So we've made things as flexible as we can, and so I'm feeling as good as I can of what is a pretty awful situation and a situation that is liable to get more complicated as we move forward uh, here on Australian soil. Yeah, it's uh, very much a, a kind of a blue sky crisis in the sense that it's uh, come along. I mean, Scott Morrison made this point. Did anyone you know, see this coming? And really, uh, nobody did. And it, it has really had such significant implications for all, all kinds of sectors in the economy, but particularly uh, for higher education. Does the sudden cutoff of uh, the Chinese students in particular prove that argument that some people have that universities are too reliant on one country for full fee-paying full fee overseas students? So I, think, I don't think it proves anything because the universities are still standing and as the head of a university, I certainly have been worried about some sort of shock. I will admit a pandemic was perhaps not what was in my mind. And making sure that the university had healthy finances, pretty much no matter what happened. And so, you know, we're big billion-dollar organizations, and we take our risk uh, very seriously. And I think that uh, if people have been not thinking about what it means to have a reliant, a very large reliance on a single market, uh, they're going to find out very quickly now because, of course, they're being tested. But again, when I look at my students, they're, as I said, an integral part of our community. And yes, they're an important part of income for the long-term health of the university, uh, just as students are the world, you know, worldwide. That is a true statement. And so I'm looking very much on making sure from an academic point of view that the students who come here get a great education and that we really focus on the student. And, you know, I've, I've said that I don't want the ANU to grow in size anymore and I want to have less reliance on a single market. And I'm doing that not from risk management. I'm doing it for academic quality so that, for example, the students who come from China get an even better experience uh, that is, has more internationally diverse and is more useful for them going forward. So, so uh, that you, you, you're, you think that out of this – your, your one objective will be to have a greater diversity of students, but it's not as a function of risk so much as a move towards giving students that sort of multinational, international kind of education experience. That's certainly been my motivation. I mean, you know, we have a special place with the National University of Australia. We're very much focused on quality, 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 excellence at everything we do. So I look through that lens first and it needs to add up, of course, yeah. uh, financially. But I, you know, have the ability of making an even better student experience for everyone and that actually helps some of the risk bits but it does mean probably less money going forward. That's OK. You know, we're, we're trying to be the best university we can 
not the university with the most amount of money. So this morning it was announced that uh, the ANU was offering $5,000 for students. Uh, What's this money supposed to go towards? So it's really meant to help students who have had this unexpected financial shock for when they want to study here. So most of them have housing contracts right now. So the issue that we're trying to address is the university has reserves. Most of our students actually don't. And so trying to lessen the shock on them. So it is really meant to just help them uh, make ends meet as they try to get here, try to make sure that they pay their rent uh, and those types of things. It's not meant to be anything other than that. And again, they have to show that they're actually spending the money. It's not just $5,000 and go out and have a party. It is literally to help make sure that students are not financially uh, disadvantaged. As we go to a quick break, let me just remind you that uh, you're listening to a Democracy Sausage uh, second serving or extra helping or however you want to call it, uh, and that our regular Democracy Sausage that comes out normally on a Tuesday morning will be coming out on a Wednesday morning in the coming week because – It's not the case all over Australia, but certainly here in Canberra, Monday is a public holiday. So we'll be uh, doing our recording on Tuesday and uh, be uh, with you on Wednesday morning. So keep your eye out for that. Uh, We'll just take a quick break. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Australia's bushfire season was devastating and unprecedented. More than 20% of the country's forests burned, destroying buildings, taking lives and decimating animal populations and biodiversity. But this season's fires haven't just changed the physical landscape, but also the political one. They've sparked a national conversation on fire management, the impact on vulnerable communities and how the country needs to tackle climate change. Join the team from Policy Forum Pod at a very special live event where we look at what comes next. With a panel of experts, we'll examine the long-term impacts of the bushfires on Australia's economy, health and biodiversity and look forward to what the country could and should be doing in the wake of the crisis. Australia Ablaze What Next takes place at the Australian National University on Tuesday the 24th of March. Register for this free event at policyforum.net forward slash events. Welcome back. Now, Brian, you're a recipient of an AC among the many accolades that you have, and there's a pretty raging, pretty fierce debate raging at the moment over uh, a recipient of a, an AM recently, that for Bettina Arndt and her comments following the, you know, the Hannah Clark and her children murder in Brisbane. 
uh, her comments have been seen as uh, you know offensive by many people. Do you have a view about this? Uh, there are many calls, and they're coming from both sides of politics now for her to be stripped of that uh, civil civic award. Yeah, so I try to think of this from a very systems level. Uh, so certainly, I found her comments uh, offensive and pretty grossly inappropriate. But I'm also an institution where we really do practice free speech uh, as best we can and that does not mean that means you should you know, be able to get a, a, a Order of Australia award. Ultimately, I think the uh, – those Order of Australia awards are meant to represent the values of the country. Australia is a very broad church and the question is does – do her comments – uh, are they inconsistent with the broad church of what Australia values? And I think the fact that there was a very broad group of politicians who essentially condemned her comments in parliament uh, certainly tells you that uh, probably is inconsistent uh, with that. And whether or not the uh, uh, Australian wards then take that out as a reason to strip it, I'm going to let them figure it out. That's it's a it's a hard conversation to have. It is a hard conversation yeah. to have, Maria. Uh, yesterday, Mark Speakman, the Attorney General in the New South Wales Liberal Government, uh, joined the uh, those calling for Bettina Arndt to be stripped of that award. Do you think she would have been given it? I mean, this is one way of thinking about this in terms of how consistent or inconsistent her views are with that recognition. Do you think she would have been given the award had she made those comments, had this all occurred before the award was granted? Oh, that's a great hypothetical. No, I'm inclined to think probably probably not, given the sort of public outcry um, that they've engendered. But I guess the, the problem facing the Australia Council now is – well, what's the criterion that they're going to establish to strip people of their awards? And what is, you know, if they switch, if they strip Bettina Arndt's award, what is the next set of awards that they may or may not be stripping? The, the whole conversation opens up a can of worms that I don't think any of them want to deal with. And it goes exactly to what sort of Brian said, which is perhaps we might want to reconsider uh, the way we think about offering awards in Australia. There has been a lot of discussion around the Australia awards sort of system in the sense that it tends to reward people who are already very powerful and very good at their jobs and tends to not reward people who are sort of quietly doing good in the community. Mm. And so perhaps the the best way to approach this is actually to think about what the award should stand for going forward, but then potentially opening up a whole series of questions that that people don't really know where they're going to go. Yeah. I guess we can just say that uh, some people are deserving and some people aren't. Maybe we'll we just... <laughs> could. We certainly could. All depends on your point of view. Indeed. Yes. Let's let's move to climate change because if COVID nineteen uh, is the uh, you know the issue of the year, then uh, climate change obviously is the issue that extends well beyond has been the going rest of for our lives. Time, I yeah, think. for our lives. Correct. Now, you've made uh, comments recently about ANU's ambition in this regard. Uh, the government's wrestling, you know, there's this big political argument about whether the 2050 net zero target is uh, is appropriate. And yesterday, Scott Morrison in the parliament actually said uh, that uh, his technology roadmap may even achieve more than the 2050 target that Labor has named, although, you know, we haven't had that filled out yet with any detail. But you're cutting through all of that and saying that ANU has a much closer target than that. Yeah, so ANU is a preeminent 
organization, uh, institution in Australia, and we are an institution that has the ability to be a first mover and just show how this will work. We have many of the best researchers across the country and the world working about how we can make the transition from business as usual to essentially what needs to be a negative emission territory. And so there is a technology side to that, but there's also a, a demand response to that as well. And I think it's really important for ANU to set, I, I guess, uh, a, a target and be able to show the rest of the community uh, how one might do this. And so we've, you know, I, I've asked a, a group of our climate scientists here, uh, led by Mark Howden, to really figure out what we can do to go uh, negative in terms of greenhouse gases as fast as possible. And that that means something now in 2020, but it has to evolve over time. And I'll give you an example why. And the ACT, uh, ANU has helped the ACT government achieve essentially zero greenhouse gases out of our electricity sector. But that is layered on top of a fossil fuel-powered electricity grid. And so while every electron we use can be accounted for as being renewable, that is probably good enough in 2020, but it's not going to be good enough in 2050 because the grid is no longer going to be fossil fuel. So we're going to have to be doing the research and the education to get away from the reliance on that fossil fuel-powered grid. So we need to think about what our target looks like in 2020, but it also what it looks like in 2030, 2040, and 2050. And it's going to have to ultimately encapsulate everything in that we do and that we interact with. But in 2020, I think there's some big things we can do right now. And that means lowering, again, our emissions in any way that we can. Uh, and there are many, many ways that we can do it. I'm really looking for bang for buck, if, I, if I'm honest. Uh, and it also means uh, looking at how we can start sequestering, for example, CO2 out of the atmosphere as fast as we can and as efficiently as we can. In the form of trees, presumably. Trees are a really good way to do it right now, but it's also soil. And there are just some ethical questions about what a offset, for example, looks like uh, right now. Is it okay to, for example, do an offset in Brazil where – or is that, a, is that really something we should reserve for the Brazilians? Should we stick to Australia? Should we stick to ANU land? There's a, a whole range of questions we need to answer. And that's why I have some of the great experts here at ANU to help provide some guidance on that. Yeah, I guess an economist would say, uh, you know, it doesn't matter where, where it happens. Uh, the, the atmosphere is global. And if you're reducing CO2, you're reducing CO2. Uh, I would say that an economist might say things are completely uh, – doesn't matter where it comes. But if it takes away the opportunity from someone else because it's not correctly priced right now, mm. et cetera, et cetera, there may be some things you need to think about. And that's so right. I and think you, there are can, some questions That's right. And you can drive behavioral change here yep. uh, if you do this properly, I suppose. If you do things that are visible and materially uh, make make a difference here, then I suppose you can drive behavioral change. That would be uh, one element of it. Are you looking at, um, you know, uh, what more solar PV in the university? Is that one option? Could we see wind turbines, um, uh, you know? Yeah, so I think it's hydrogen. really important. And I'm, I'm always asking the question, if we're going to put 
a wind turbine up or we're going to put a piece of solar PV, is it in the most efficient place possible? What's the right way if we're going to invest, for example, in those activities? What's the right place to have it? One of the things we're investing in is in the underpinning research that goes to putting a giant renewable energy farm up in uh, the northern part of Australia so that we can both create a huge domestic supply of cheap electricity and to be able to export it. So right now, that strikes me as a good bang for buck, even though it doesn't necessarily directly power us. It's creating a huge impact that is, you know, could be literally millions of tons of CO2 over the years. So we need to think really strategically about our big value add in the giant system, which is planet Earth, while at the same time making sure at the, that we actually look after our own emissions at the same time. Because it's more than just us. We actually are one of the key institutions around the world for the planet. So we have a big job in front of us. So, so how much of this strategy is actually like I guess geared to you know the, the the lived reality and the work environment that Mark and I will face when we come into work every day and how much of it is actually looking beyond the borders of the ANU, which is the size of a suburb for those of you that don't know? So it has to be both. And I think symbolism is important to a point. And I think we do have to, if we're going to have credibility in the broader uh, community, we have to live up to what we're preaching. But then we have a much bigger thing we have to, to live up to, which is helping the entire planet get across the line and solve a huge global issue. So we have to do both because we can't do the big one if we don't have local credibility. So you know, my strategy is to do – to show – lead by example how to do it locally while at the same time uh, contributing globally. And that is in all sorts of things. It's in negative emissions technology of how we use, you know, soil here in Australia. You might be able to create giant processes and manufacturing processes or geologic processes to sequester carbon, create hydrogen economy, create mass scale renewable power. All these things really need to happen uh, for us to achieve a, a meaningful uh, net zero in 2050. Uh, and so we're going to be involved in all those things. And could we see a giant battery, for example, on ANU property? Uh, not here, if it maybe. makes sense for us yeah. to do it. And you know, one of the things I really want to make sure we do is we couple our research and emerging technologies and so we can lead by example of showing how does a big battery work. Mm. Uh, but we probably don't want to put a gigawatt battery in the ACT campus. But we might want to put a small one so that we can learn how to use them and integrate it into grids. And then help make the, gigabit, the, the, the gigawatt battery come up someplace else where it makes more sense from a systems point of view. When you were asked about this on AM by my friend Cyber Lane, I, I remember one word particularly that came out of your mouth quite early in the answer, which is that you, you said you were weary about the, um, you know, the debate on climate change uh, around the science and so forth. Uh, how how frustrating has that been? And as a, as a follow up to that, th there seems to be a shift going on now, a pivot towards the sort of technology you've just been talking about. In the end, is all this sort of debate going to get overtaken by technological advances? So I'm weary because we're continuing to go over the same old crap, and mm. a lot of it's just crap. Mm. And I don't mind, and indeed I insist upon 
people who are experts coming in and questioning our understanding. That is part of science. And that is a great thing to occur expert to expert. And that's how science works. Uh, the weariness comes from people who are not experts continually throwing up crap science in public and just you know creating a distraction, creating red herrings yeah. to the real debate. Mm. In the end, science is never black and white. It's always about probabilities. And you know, there's the probabilities that we have a four or five degree uh, warming of the planet coming up and the impacts that cause. And you know, when I multiply those things out, we need to be working really fast at mitigating that risk as fast as we can. Technology is a really important aspect to that, but it's not just technology. We have to build up resilience for the change that's already coming, uh, and that means being able to adapt. And you don't adaption is not sufficient on itself, but we're going to have to do that because the change is coming and it's coming fast. At the same time. We do need to create new technologies, but we also have to just change our behaviors and get people thinking about this through every aspect of our planning uh, within society. It's, it's just such a huge thing. It needs to be integrated into uh, our thinking on a day-to-day -day basis of everything that our society does. Because if we don't get – if we get this wrong, it really is going to be catastrophic. Another thing that you announced in your State of the University address uh, earlier in this year was um, these Indigenous scholarships. Uh, that's obviously a priority for you as well and, and, and the whole issue of Indigenous recognition. Uh, you've spoken about that a number of times. Is there frustration there as well? I guess uh, it's lack of a frustration. I feel over the first uh, four years here at ANU, we've, we've really been making steps every, every day. It's been continual progress. That's on a backdrop of a really sad last hundred years plus. Mm. And so Australia has a long ways to go and it will – you know, our, our journey is going to outlast me. But I guess I've been really excited about how the university has come together and said this is an issue that we can make progress and we are enhanced by understanding uh, the indigenous heritage of the areas here of Australia understanding their stories, getting to know uh, people who, you know, are from parts of society we normally wouldn't have come across in our in our schooling. And they help enrich the culture here at ANU. And when you as a teacher, for example, uh, meet someone who's come from, you know, the middle of Australia and they light up and they realize they can go out based on the work they've done with you and others around you and change the world for better – that's exciting. And everyone really is excited about being part of that journey. But we have a problem. And the problem is that Australia's current education policy means unless you're rich enough to actually live in Canberra on your own means, we don't actually provide enough support for you to move to Canberra, undertake your studies and not have to work three jobs simultaneously, which undermine your ability to be at this world-class institution and take everything in that it has to offer. Correct. So these scholarships are about creating, uh, you know, getting around that shortfall. And my basic goal is any indigenous student who is accepted at ANU, has the ability to study at ANU, finance will not be a reason they don't come. 
yeah. supports that. Yeah. So the um, the QS rankings came out today, uh, which was a very good result for for my college, the College of Arts and Social Sciences, and for my school, which is now in the the top eight, the School of Politics and International Relations. You were talking uh, before about the the need for, I guess, clearer discourse around science um, and the fact that the sort of policy problems we're facing around climate change are, are very kind of complex. Australia already has a chief scientist. Do you think that we should have a chief social scientist as well to help us drive <laughs> policy questions forward? That's an interesting question. Uh, one might argue that uh, pretty much every secretary in the, the 14 of them are actually already fulfilling that role. Essentially, none of them have science degrees. They all have degrees that help them do uh, public policy. So is there a part of the discussion that needs to involve, I would describe, the social sciences per se? I'm open to that as an idea. But I guess when I look at the chief scientist role, are we getting what we need out of that role? Uh, the UK has embedded a, uh, a scientist in each part of the uh, each part of government, and we don't have that right now. And there's only so many places the chief scientist can be at one time. I I actually think having you know I get to run a, a university that has an incredibly strong social sciences, very strong sciences. What we're actually talking about here is a, a knowledge and evidence base. And so maybe we shouldn't call it the chief scientist. We should call the chief academician or something because I actually think when we fracture along the lines of science and non-science, we're missing a big part of, uh, uh, of the, the richness of knowledge uh, and information that needs to go in uh, to policy questions. So I understand why you as a political scientist might be a little unhappy not having uh, the chief social scientist. But I actually think what we shouldn't do is create new silos. I actually think we need to think beyond science, non-science and think about people who are chief policy advisors with expertise. Uh, and that is necessarily going to cut across those traditional si silos. Now, we're getting toward the end of our time with you, Brian, but I, I can't uh, help but ask you this question, given your uh, antecedents. Can um, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump? Oh, it's so hard to tell. If you look at the betting markets, uh, which, you know, as good as anything, you know, he's sort of got a 30% chance, but it's changing quickly. Who knows what Donald Trump's going to do next week? I mean, Donald Trump has the ability to completely do things beyond any realm that a normal person might expect. He's a disruptor, isn't he? He is a disruptor That's and a he is a self-disruptor as much as anyone else. So it could be that Trump does something just unimaginable and completely poisons his ability to win the next election. But Trump has also been able to normalize his disruption in a way that I – as an American citizen, in addition to being an Australian citizen, I, I just have to scratch my head in wonder. Mm. And so – It's quite fascinating though, isn't it, how this, this, this cloud, this sort of anarchic so, cloud so of alternatives has just suddenly reduced down to uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden as we, as we are recording this now. All the others have dropped out. Warren's dropped out yep. today. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's, it feels like it's suddenly focusing and it does appear to be focusing towards Joe Biden. The establishment will get behind him. 
And we, we, we must remember that Trump's never had his approval rating over 50% at any time. Now, that's virtually unheard of for any president in living memory. But he doesn't need to have it over 50% because he only needs 46% of the vote to win. Yeah, and, but there's a lot of people who don't like him and uh, some of those didn't vote last time. You know, Now, some of them won't vote again. I know this might be you know, wishful thinking on the part of the Democrats, but I don't think it's as unwinnable for the Democrats as uh, you know, the orthodox opinion has suggested, particularly if they have a centrist candidate. It is certainly not unwinnable and the betting markets will say it's at least 30 uh, percent, which is you know, about the same as what they gave Trump uh, last time. Mm. So uh, – Trump so certainly did win. But I would even say I'm not convinced that Bernie is unelectable either. Uh, he appeals to a different sort of person than perhaps I am as someone who kind of you know, likes order and evidence. a certain amount of uh, rigor uh, behind the economics and, and evidence behind it. But he does cut into Trump's – people who voted for Trump last time in a way that Biden probably does not. So – you know, the future is very hard to predict. So I think he's in within a chance. I think both candidates are in with a chance. But it's a long time till November. And based on the first two and a half months of this year, anything's possible. <laughs> I think that's definitely true. It's just been so unpredictable in so many ways politically and uh, in terms of the weather and, of course, this uh, this virus and who knows what else. We'll wait to see what the uh, what the government comes up here in terms of its uh, its economic stimulus package, and uh, and that may only be the first tranche of of a number of them. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, Brian Schmidt, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a particular pleasure, and thanks to you too, Maria, for Thank being you. here. And uh, keep a, an eye out for the regular Democracy Sausage, as I say, coming to you on Wednesday of uh, of uh, this coming week, uh, rather than the normal Tuesday morning. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. 